and welcome to the 72nd episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. I'm Matt Lees. I'm joined by Quentin Smith. Hello. And across the big pond of fun, Mr. Paul Dean. Hello. I'm on the other side of the pond of fun. Yeah, it's what I like to call the ocean. Paul, still in exile right now, I believe, having temporarily left Canada for visa purposes and are traveling around America like a cold or, or some kind of beetle. I'm uh, hopping railroad trains and, and playing a guitar and wearing a hat. And only becoming sad occasionally, is that right? Yes. <laughs> it's the life. Today we've got some board games to talk about. Well, I say we. Mostly Quinns and Paul have been really playing the hell out of things. Quinns, what would you like? You've been playing a bunch of stuff. You've been playing A Tale of Pirates, London. Ooh. You've been playing London, I've been playing the City of London. <laughs> I've been playing London, living in London, and hoping it's good enough to do a review where I walk around London. Wow. How appropriate. What a, what a connection. <laughs> right. And uh, Gaia Project slash Terra Mystica. Yes. Well, uh, yeah, I've obviously dipped in for a bit of Terra Mystica as an outsider anchor to be like, is am I going insane? Is this game actually as good as I remember? Yeah. To which I said, yes. <laughs> yeah. This it's, is great. Yeah, you're an important part of that review process. Uh, meanwhile, Paul. Paul, yeah. What have you been playing? I've been playing a whole bunch of things, including, but not limited to, The Mountaineers. Uh, oh, I've just seen a theme here. The Mountaineers, uh, The Climbers, and actually unrelated, The Munchkin CCG. And I can't believe that I'm going to talk about Munchkin Game on this podcast. Wow. Matt, have you ever had the pleasure of playing Munchkin? I haven't. I've seen it being played, and I thought, I don't want to play that. <laughs> um, I think because, you know, I had a, I, I had, a, had my experience with Flux was... Um, Unpleasant. Oh, it's, yes. it's not as terrible as Flux. No, no, it's not. But it's still, it's, there's something about the spirit of Munchkin that I can un- I completely understand why loads of people love it. And I'm not to be like, oh, it's bad. But it just, I thought, that's not for me. Not for me. Um, also, before we begin, though, we've got a couple of uh, addendums to add from the last podcast. Paul, you wanted to know what a game was called and you found out, right? So what was the game you were describing last last podcast? It was, uh, well, several people got in touch, so thank you very much to everybody who reminded me of what the game is called. I can't actually remember how the oh, game is pronounced. Kobayakawa. I think it's Kobayakawa. Have we ever sounded more white those than right now? Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm sorry about that. But that's the, the, the quite terrific but quite simple card game that I talked about on the previous podcast. So if any of you are interested in time travel, then put on your uh, backwards goggles and you can jump back to Podcast 71 and hear me fumble as I try to describe this very simple game that I don't know the name of because Wait, I'm an expert. Hang on. Paul, in this in this correctional phase, mm-hmm. do, do we have the capacity to actually say the, the name of the game correctly just once? Otherwise, this is a correction where we have not even... <laughs> Corrected well, ourselves. I, I'm going to say Kobayakawa. Flawless, Kobayakawa. right, Matt. Right, well, moving on. On the topic of being very white <laughs> and possibly offensive to Asian cultures, I would like to briefly point out that I I need to apologise for me talking about fake eggs last time. Fake I, eggs. I wasn't on the last podcast. Like fake news. I was listening along and thinking, wow, this story Matt's telling about fake eggs is amazing. Yeah, well, no, the thing is, it was one of these things where it's a story that I've had in my head for literally, I, I counted back the years, and it was one of these things of being like, I'm older than I think I am in my head, because I was like, ah, Ooh. somebody, I read about that a couple of years ago. I probably got told about it about 10 to 11 years ago. Okay. Right? When I was at a point where I was less of a critical eye. It was pre-being a journalist, for the starters. Like, I didn't really have a critical eye for information being given to me. And it turns out, yeah, that in particular <laughs> is one of these weird urban myths, which is basically like kind of comes out of nowhere and is probably just related to the kind of... Li- lies of, is of, the word you're looking for, lies. pointed out, it's kind of a, a web of, of kind of modern versions of distrust of the East and this idea of like, you know, distrust of... You know, is Western. the word you're looking for racism? Yes, basically, but wow. like a very specific. Matt, kind of are racism. you apologising for being accidentally racist? Well, yeah, pretty much. I'm uh, apologising for regurgitating information which was created for probably slightly racist means. Wow. So yeah, it turns out fake eggs not true. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where you kind of look back and sometimes you think with tiny anecdotes in the past, you think you just keep repeating them until someone goes, "That's insane." Well, before yeah, we move on yeah. to board games. Let me just say that I'm proud of both of you because I always get things wrong, but then forget to correct myself. <laughs> However, I don't mean to drag you two too hard because well done on fixing 
your mistakes. Paul, do you want to take us away with one of uh, these games you've played? Yeah, I want to start uh, like almost literally on a high with The Mountaineers, which was uh, a game that I played at PAX South just the other month. Uh, a convention with a lot more board games and a lot more board gamers than I expected. Um, are you ready for the three-dimensional cardboard something? I can't think of good alliteration that is The Mountaineers. Uh, we certainly are. So, imagine you have in front of you an actual cardboard mountain, as if you had you know, stacked bits of cardboard against one another to create a sort of triangle. And it can be three-sided or it can be four-sided. A pyramid, just like, if you will. Well, just like all real mountains, they have three or four sides. I don't think they, they do any more than that. Um, yeah. It is basically a game about drawing paths across this mountain using your climber peg by peg, hole by hole, because the way that your uh, your little cardboard person actually remains on the mountain is you have to stick them in a hole and gradually sort of work them the way up. There's um, a whole bunch of different ways to score points according to different routes that you complete. So if you do something like, uh, if you climb a certain distance without touching a particular kind of terrain, or maybe you do all of your climb on snow, or maybe you do it without crossing any rivers, or if you do, you use certain bridges or things like that. You leave a whole bunch of pitons, I think is the word, like pegs behind you as you trail your way across sometimes to different sides of this mountain, but everybody else is trying to do the same thing at the same time. And you have dangers like the weather changes, so that makes some of your journey easier or harder, or you can buy equipment upgrades that make some of your climbing easier or harder. And the whole time you've got this big physical mountain in front of you that you can actually rotate on its base. So you can oh. like look at the different sides. And I tell you what, immediately, this is the weirdest thing because you're so used to, as a board game player, not touching the board and interfering with it, mm. which in this game is actually not conducive. And it, it's specifically built on this little rotating platform so that you should do that all the time. You should just turn this thing, look at the whole mountain, think about, you know, like, oh, in a couple of turns, I might want to take a helicopter to a different side of the mountain to do different route there <laughs> to score a bunch of points. And it's kind of against mm. the whole philosophy that we've grown up with of like, don't don't move the board, don't fiddle but with anything. I've got a question here, Paul. Do you Do not it. have with this revolving steep, it's 18 inches, this thing, 18 Ooh. inches high, this revolving steep pyramid of cardboard that you can turn around and look at from all angles. Do you not have that identical awkwardness that you get when you are shopping in an airport duty free and there's one of those racks of sunglasses and you realise <clears> that the sunglasses you want to look at are on the other side but there's someone already looking at some sunglasses, so you feel like you can't spin it around to get to the glasses you want. You do. It is exactly like the airport <laughs> conundrum that we've all been in. However, because you are taking turns, um, you know, you get used to it. But actually, no, this is the thing that surprised me is you, you feel timid about it because you know that there are other people looking at stuff. And you have to, as a group, collectively get over that and be like, you know, it's my turn now. I'm going to rotate the board and look at where you are and look at where I am and try and work out, you know, what we're going to do next and whether I'm well, going to try and sabotage your route by climbing across you. Conversely, is it a val valid tactic to quickly memorise the entire board and then continue to spin it very quickly <laughs> so that no one else can see? I would say it's not in the spirit of the game, but I do want to do that every time I play now. <laughs> no, it's definitely not in the spirit of game, the game or games, probably, but yeah. So not... Okay, this is going to sound like I'm being mean, but this is a gimmick, right? I mean, there's... Uh, gimmicks are cool, like, you know, miniatures are gimmicks and we love them. Gimmicks can be what brings mm -hmm. a game to life, but there's no reason this couldn't be done on, like, an extra-large board, right? Well, you know what? So I was thinking about this, and maybe... I mean, that because it is an actual three-dimensional space um, and you have different faces of the mountain, it, it's arranged in a certain way where I think it would actually look clumsy as a 2D board. You would have to... Um, sort of do a distorted projection of things. You probably could. You probably could do it with a larger 2D board on a table. Uh, I mean, you so, could. It would just be a circle. And it, it might not look yeah. as pretty, but it would be, it would be the same. It yeah, would okay. be functionally similar, I guess. Um, and I was thinking about this while I was playing it, like how much of it is the fact that it's it's physically appealing. And I can't deny that that is actually... For me as a guy playing it, I actually just liked that element of it. And if you took that away, it would be a somewhat more basic game about tracing routes. But I don't know, it kind of, it, it worked on me. And it, I don't think uh, from a mechanics point of view, it's particularly 
revolutionary or seriously sort of stepping forward by doing any of the things that it does but it was really quite good fun and i would i i would absolutely play it again and i would absolutely construct it comes with a bunch of different mountain sides so you can randomly generate different mountains every time and i would absolutely you know try a different mountain and try and score different points for like finding a bear or going into a cave or something which are all things you can do so we've established that asking paul the question of but would you buy it is is meaningless uh however paul <laughs> what, what i figured out that Why i can that ask true you sorry go on ask is would are you going to review it uh it is on the list of stuff i would try if i could get hold of it it was a kickstarter success recently and they're looking at more general distribution which means it should be sort of available on the market later in the year and if i come across it i think it is worth i think it's actually worth a review not least because it's just a pretty game it will look cool on camera or even cool as a written post um and i i don't know a lot of friends of mine would really actually enjoy playing it and i think everybody would enjoy that physicality of twirling this mountain of trying to cut each other's roots off um and you know for that for getting some of the friends i have into board gaming who are less keen than i am i don't mind trying to pull them in with something like this oh absolutely i mean we're looking at pictures now over in the uk office and it's it's really quite nice it's kind of Yes. I don't know if it's deliberate, but the art on the mountain itself almost looks like a kind of abstracted, uh, like the guide you'd get at a ski resort of like, I'm an artist and I'm just going to draw this map in a kind of plain manner. I wouldn't agree with that. Yeah, well, you're the art (laughs) expert or art I'd say the the art in this game is just just very bad. But um, that's not to say that, you know, that's uh, literally like that does matter to agree, but the different people, um, I'd say, yeah, it's pretty awful. But it still looks really engaging. Like, I mean, to be honest, the thing I'm interested in most is uh, I, like many people, because I'm a human being and we're affected by culture and trends, I'm quite into climbing. And I don't do a lot of climbing, rope climbing, etc. but I do know enough about rope climbing um, and the principles of that. So I sort of wonder how much of, how many of the mechanics in this game actually make you feel like you are climbers. Like, obviously you have batons and you're putting them in holes to move up. Are there elements where, you know, you're, you're falling down? Yeah, or... I mean, there's a difference between... A card game, which is just numbers, can feel more like climbing than an actual board game that is themed around climbing. Mechanics can do so much yeah, uh, yeah. work. So, like, what, of... what, how does that feel? I mean, obviously I've seen things like there's bears and there's... Oh, um, yeah. ...purchases such as harnesses, etc. But it, it kind of looks to me a little generic. Is there anything that... any? Any elements of it that you feel like really bring it to life? Like, you get the sense that you are actually climbers rather than just... Because I wonder how much, as we talked about, you know, I think having a 3D pyramid mm-hmm. board, something that's so vertical, it's a very steep pyramid. It is a gimmick, but it's also something when you're playing would probably very much feel like you're climbing in a cool way. But if you take that away, what's there in terms of mechanics and not presentation to make it feel like a game about climbing, yeah. if anything? Well, you, I would say there isn't necessarily a huge amount going on there that made me feel particularly it didn't have that same sense of sort of momentum or desperation that uh k2 has which is a game that we reviewed years ago now k2 Um, being a climbing game which had a very nice mechanic to do with the you would play cards from your hand and it was you wanted to rush forward but not so fast that your body didn't acclimatize and does it have dogs on the box uh k2 maybe Okay, I just, I just, I'm trying to envision it, and I thought it had dogs on the box. Oh, okay. It's not a terribly relevant question. I thought it was a sort of terribly sideways joke. No, it's not a joke. Yeah, there was something about K2. It's been ages since I played it, um, but there was an intense pressure, and there was a fear mm-hmm. in K2, and you could die in it. And players often did if they pushed themselves too hard, which felt perfect for a mountaineering game, a sport where people genuinely do die, especially if they're racing. Mm. And I don't know if it, something like this would necessarily even have to be gritty in that regard. Of no. Being like, but there is that element of, of yeah, of if you are going to try and climb quickly, that does come with risks of, you know, often just risks of losing progress. You know, like the whole really when you climb mountain climbing is is a, a kind of war of attrition, really just very gradually moving up and, and using yeah. certain measures to ensure that if you do slip, you don't. A, kill yourself, and B, lose too much progress. You know, yeah. that's what batons are about. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I just, yeah, no, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be interested to, to have a play, but I'm, I'm just asking tough questions. I've gone a bit Paxman. No, it's good. It, um, <laughs> it, I will say right away, it doesn't have the same sense of momentum for me as K2, and it doesn't have that mechanical sort of expertise. It feels more, 
I still enjoyed it and I still enjoyed the challenge of uh, the sort of the race against time against other players, but it feels much more that you are climbers who are racing and that, you know, there's a degree of safety in what you're doing and you're trying to outwit one another rather than really struggle. And I, it's deliberately uh, designed, I think, to be not too difficult and also to you actually can lose points for sabotaging other people and ruining their routes the idea is to try and beat them or cut them off rather than actually do things like uh, pull their pittons out the board because that that's unsporting that's incredibly dangerous yeah so it's a bit more tactical uh is there a wingsuit in this game paul (laughs) hey i'm sorry uh sorry okay so some people at my friendly local board game meet were complaining about a mountainy nearing game and i think it might have been this one whereby they were saying that i mean apologies in advance if this is not the game they were talking about uh but they were saying oh problem with this game is there's a wingsuit whereby you can climb to the top of the mountain and just fly off by leaping off a cliff i think so i right, don't moving on there's helicopters but Abort. that's different i thought you just <laughs> approached this from the sort of the mindset of someone who likes playing just cause games why well, that's what they made <gasps> it sound like I want to play Just Cause now. Quinns, can we talk about Tale of Pirates? Okay, yes, we can talk about Tale of Pirates, which interestingly, uh, so a written review of this went up on the site yesterday, so I'm not going to talk that much about it. Um, But this is another 3D board game that you can rotate. How about that for relevancy? Mm. Oh, tell me a tale of a rotating board (laughs) on the sea. Honestly, I was ready to be annoyed when you started singing, but that was funny. Uh, So, yeah, The Tale of Pirates is a game in the style of um, last year's Kitchen Rush um, by, and I can't remember their names, it's a collaboration of three designers, one of whom is the guy who did Flam Rouge, another of which is the guy who did Marco Polo and Zolkin and a bunch of other really good games. Mm Um which is interesting because they're like Danish and Italian, so how did that come about? Anyway, A Tale of Pirates is a game like Kitchen Rush, whereby players all have sand times, it's co-op, it's real time, you're running a pirate ship. Um, but whereas in Kitchen Rush, you ran a kitchen by placing your sand timer, and when the sand ran out, you'd like baked a chicken or, you know, bought some pasta shapes. Um, in Tale of Pirates, you put your sand timer on the cannon, and then when the sand runs to the bottom, you've loaded that cannon! And if someone else puts their sand timer there, then the sand runs out, they can fire the cannon! If someone's at the ship's wheel and the sand runs out of their sand timer, they can they then pick up the entire ship and rotate it. Wow. And this is quite a cool thing because um, the way, the way this co-op game works is that you've got cards which might represent you know things like enemy ships or yeah. rocks or fog, and you just put them I shot the fog. Yeah, well that happens, man. <laughs> yeah, right. So you uh, you put them face down in a in the six different sections around the ship, which can be like northwest, northeast, south, southwest, southeast. Mm-hmm. Um. So, but you can only see stuff the ship is pointing at. So at the start of a sort of uh, scenario, you'll flip over all the cards that are in front of the ship and you'll be like, oh, there's a caravel in front of us. But the cannons on your ship only point to the left and right. Right. So immediately someone's like, well, drop the sails so we can rotate because right now we're going too fast. And then you rotate, but there were rocks to the right. So then you take damage from the rocks. And the way you can flip up cards, so like, for example, you don't ram into rocks. The little man in the... You climb the, top. the crow's nest. That's the thing. <gasps> you, put, you put your oh sand timer in the crow's nest at the top of the ship and when the sand runs out you can pick one card around the ship to flip so, up and you can be like to be clear all of this happens just on one ship no matter how many pirates you have you're always on one boat yes it's two to four players if it's two players you each have two sand timers if it's three or four players you all have one sand timer but it's it's got a lot of really nice coordination like um, with Kitchen Rush I felt more like we didn't review it because we preferred Overcooked and I talk a bit about that in the review Overcooked being a video game mm. but mechanically weirdly is really similar to kitchen rush and i didn't feel it was worth us doing the review because i'm not sure how weird that is (laughs) well (laughs) who knows who knows um but yes so i mean this is interesting though to me because already i can see that having this rotating 3d thing yeah is already something which is goes beyond being a gimmick to being a mechanic yes then you're turning the ship to do Mm -hmm. things and you're like you know. Yeah, absolutely. And there is genuinely a thing of um, if you want to fire the cannons on the left and you're sat to the right, then you have to reach around the crow's nest. And like reaching around this physical object in real time yeah. becomes not a mechanic necessarily, but a consideration. Um, and yeah, the coordination required is genuinely really nice because it. here's the thing. It's a legacy game, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's got 10 Ooh. scenarios in this box and an app that walks you through it. And it's got 10 sealed envelopes. And um uh, if I'm completely honest, I was put onto this game by Tom Vassell saying, this game's going in my collection. Uh, Tom Vassell being the lead reviewer of the Dice Tower, whose opinion I do trust when he says he's putting games in his collection. That's a big deal. Mm. So I got it and tried it. And sure enough, it's really, really good. And progressing through the different scenarios of it is a delight. 
Um, it's not something that I personally am going to progress with. We played, I think, the first four scenarios and were thrilled by the secrets, which I'm not going to reveal here on the podcast. Um, and the way it keeps introducing new mechanics. Um, but frankly, I've just got too much to play right now. Yeah. Uh, but if people would like to hear more about just how tricky it is to run a pirate ship with nothing more than like sand timers, <laughs> um, they can read my review on shutupandsitdown.com or search for Shut Up and Sit Down, A Tale of Pirates. Um, yeah, trying to be trying to be coy, trying to give uh, Paul more time to talk about his games on this podcast. I am really uh, interested in Tale of Pirates now. Thank you for that. That has made me really, really pirate curious. You know what? Our website is P Good. That's P is short for pretty. Pirates. It's short for pirates good. Yeah. Uh, Paul, do you want to continue your theme of climbing and talk about The Climbers? The Climbers. So this is a really interesting game. It's a bunch of different sized wooden blocks that have different uh, colors on different sides, which are like, uh, you know, one side will be yellow and one side will be pink or whatever. Um, and some of these blocks are like cubes, but some of them are not. Some of them are like half cubes or big, long uh, whatever the word for a three-dimensional rectangle is. I used to be very good at maths, but I've forgotten it all. Uh, a hyperoblong. <laughs> there we go. A, hype, a, a hypercube. A rhombus. Yeah, that's that's a different shape, but it's a great shape. Ooh. Um, and they all come in the box, packed together, and you uh, take them all out, and you build this sort of giant construction out of them, randomly turning them in whatever direction and combination you like. And every player's uh, piece corresponds to one of these colours. That is one of the sides of uh, all the all these many shapes, mm, it and has you ladders. have it's, you have two a, ladders. Becomes you an have, abstract painting. It, it looks it kind becomes, of like yeah, it's like an Escher painting that makes sense, basically, like, but, <laughs> which well, is that, not necessarily the most exciting thing in the world, but it's it's nonetheless very appealing to look at. It's you know what you've immediately made me think of that person who did those paintings that are just lines and colours, which. I can't remember the name of them. They're not very interesting oh. paintings. Anyway, yeah. this is better than paintings <laughs> because you can climb all over it. Um, your coloured person can only step. <laughs> this No, it's true. Can only Sorry, step. I don't go to galleries with you, Paul. <laughs> oh, I've got happiness so much trouble. I got, I've made a man really angry in New York because I looked at a painting and he was like, it's time to go. He was so angry. Anyway, <laughs> this is true. I'll tell this story some other time. I'll tell it a some kind of a live recording people the way can ask me you about look it. at things paul <laughs> were you drooling massively like just wiping your chin every minute i was just i was happy i looked and it was a picture of ben franklin <laughs> well that explains that then. it's the famous picture of ben franklin that's like on a certain american dollar bill and i was like ooh, and he went we're closed and i was like okay anyway the climbers that the museum gallery was closed rather <laughs> Look, was it like 3am and had you entered via the window <laughs> this is not this is look i'm getting distracted the climbers uh so on your turn you can take a wooden block and you can rearrange it somewhere in this structure so you can like take it off the top and put it to the side and you can rotate them and you can put them like on their side or on their bottom the idea being that you're a little colored person who can only step on things of the same color will be able to hop up to the next highest level of that color and it's, you can imagine if you're like playing this solo, it would be a cool little puzzle where you're like, oh, I'll take this block down from up here and I'll put it next to this and then it's taller than this block and then my person hops up a bit higher. And then you have these two ladders and it's like, oh, you can use those as like one-off bonuses. So your person climbs up this ladder to get all the way to the top of this block because there's such a height difference, but then you're higher. But then imagine that there's like five people playing this and you're all constantly taking this construction apart and trying to rearrange it and reshape it and ruining one another's chances to climb up to a higher spot because somebody else is rearranging a block so they can get a little bit higher, except they can't rearrange a block that you're stood on because that wouldn't be allowed, and they can't rearrange a block that you've put your little block marker on, and you end up in this sort of horrible logic, three-dimensional mathematical mess where you're trying to path out a way to get higher than anybody else by moving stuff, but not moving the stuff that people are on because you can't move that. And then trying we're to looking, plan two turns ahead, and it's actually really quite good. We're looking at a picture now, and it looks like a combination of like it looks half like a really cool board game, and then half mm. like a, an anxiety dream I would have. <laughs> <laughs> I think it looks like the sort of thing you'd see as a decoration IKEA. That you go, that's really interesting. That's really cool. I don't think I want it in my house. But that's as a as but what a if permanent you could play with? Yeah, not as a. But like, if you could put it away when mum's yeah, coming. Yeah, no, over. I just think it's like. I mean, it's pretty cool though. 
but the way you talk about how it being played of being like increasingly moving up whilst things are locked in place and it's yeah. hard and hard to choose sounds like reverse jenga like moving yeah. adding things up but having less and less choices I mean, it kind of is. Um, and it's, I don't know if it's for everyone. It's got that sort of a logic-y, I don't know, abstract kind of feel to it. But I actually enjoyed it a lot myself and ended up winning, which is weird because I didn't think I would win something that required this much brain power. And it was late in the day and I was at a convention that was very busy. Um, it's so got this a, is a real, a real thinker then, is it? Uh, it does somewhat. I mean, you never know, obviously, what the next player is going to do. And with a single move, they could substantially sort of rearrange this pile of blocks and they could change everybody's potential path upwards. So you mm. can't necessarily plan ahead a lot. But there are certain colors, certain sides of blocks that are neutral, which means everybody can climb up to them. So you can occasionally put a thing down that, like, lets both of you jump up. And there's a sort of a semi-co-op aspect where you can just talk to other players and be like, if I put this bit here... Do you, how do you feel about that? And then next turn, you rotate that in a way that helps me. And for one turn, we're buddies. And they go, yep. Or they go, nope, screw you. And they put their ladder down and they go, boop. And they're like three <laughs> levels above you. And they go, bye. I, uh, that's life. That's I'm going to ask my, my favorite question when I'm teaching a board game, which is a legit question, but still always makes me laugh, which is, Paul, when does it end? <laughs> It never ends. Um, it ends when nobody else can make another move, which is maybe one of the only things that made me... It's it's a weird feeling, but it's sort of... You end up having to look at this structure and realize that, you know, at a certain point, there's going to be a point where nobody can move any blocks because you're stood on all the blocks or you're stood on the legal moves. Um, and then the rest of the moves are sort of irrelevant or they're all below where you are. And trying to work out when that point will come is a little, it's not always easy to see, and it feels a little bit of a sort of an underwhelming way to end a game because you basically, it's like saying we've now locked the board out to everyone. No one can do anything else, game over the end. And it's, if I had a, you know, a sort of a criticism, it's that the end feels a bit anticlimactic in that way. Uh, still, looks nice. It does look nice. It looks it like was sort of fun, though. would be a lot of fun to play like head-to-head as more of a kind of like abstract a jewel of wits. Would that be? Would you reckon that would work? Uh, I would be interested to try it that way. I tried it with a group of like five or six people, so it was very much the opposite to that. It yeah, was very it's, chaotic. It's one of those games where, like, with you know, with more people, you have that sense of like you can't really plan ahead because the game state is going to change so much by the time it gets round to you. Where I guess with that back and forth, it's it can go one of two ways. I guess it either becomes that wonderful trying to second guess players to to block and move ahead and get the optimal position or it can just be a kind of weird stalemate where things just mm. yeah yeah it is interesting know, like, it's very very it's a very attractive thing it is it is we saw and this was... when we were at pax unplugged yeah we did and oh, uh, really? it was pointed out to us that the little ladder pieces that players can use to climb up the like the one-shot powers i'm using my ladder the fact that it's a physical ladder in the box is like it's nice but completely nonsensical yeah. because mm-hmm. you know you sort of hold up the ladder and go i'm using my ladder and then the ladder Take goes back in the box <laughs> yeah so speaking of throwing ladders away, there used to be, I heard, a rule in London that you couldn't have a building that was taller than a firefighter's ladder in case of a fire. I thought you were going to make is, social commentary there. No is, that, is that true? I, I, it could be like one of those nonsense urban legend things, but it's my way of swinging the, this vehicle around, seizing the wheel, pointing it towards London and asking you, Quinton Smith, what is... Well, I know what the board game London's about. Is it what good? What is London? Uh, yeah, so London is a game by uh, Martin Wallace, who is a, a guy who makes games that are sometimes amazing, sometimes less amazing, but always quite often quite interesting. Um, he did a few acres of snow. He did Brass. It's probably his most famous game, the legendarily difficult and chewy game of uh, sort of being a, a rich man in the Industrial Revolution. London is a similar game about being a rich man after the Great Fire of London. It's a It used to be a board game with cards. Now I've played the beautiful new uh, mm. edition from Osprey Games, which is a company where I keep wanting them to have a hit because they keep putting out just lovely minimalist boxes with lovely cards and wonderful cardstock and uh, Matt and I played Odin's Ravens uh, after the UK Games Expo last year. And it's, it's a like, beautiful game. It's a beautiful game. It's it's quite good, but it's like... Eh, it's, mm. I thought it was uh, pretty great, actually. Okay, well, maybe I will give you my copy after this podcast <laughs> if you're very good. Um, but 
Uh, yeah, so London is their fabulous second edition. They've done away with the board. It's just a card game, and it is interesting. So the object of the game is to have the most prestige or points, and you do that by, on your turn, you draw cards, and then you can play cards into your city, which becomes like a tableau of cards in front of you. So maybe you have uh maybe you have uh gardens like but these are all places in london which was giving me and my friend who both live in london like it was making us embarrassingly excited like oh, i've built kensington gardens i've built nelson's column i've been built the monument to the great fire of london here's the thing that is uh, mechanically interesting though if you don't live in london so the way the game works is you're playing cards out in front of you you're saying i want to build this 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 and this as you build you're discarding those cards to a shop so you if players don't want to draw their cards blindly off the stack they can pick up what you've discarded so that's a mechanical consideration but the best part is that once you've got your city of like four or five cards in front of you you can instead of building on your turn elect to run your city and that means all of those cards in front of you do their power so they go pop 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 Uh, like the gardens will clear up some poverty and then the the Nelson's column will give you some prestige and the, this this greengrocer will give you a bag of money and then they all get turned face down and can't be used again. Um, but here's the twist. Every single card that you just ran gives you a poverty cube. Every card left over in your hand when you run your city gives you a poverty cube. Other things sometimes give you poverty cubes. And poverty cubes who are just a massive negative victory point thing. Mm-hmm. Now... What's interesting there is once you've turned those cards face down, and I really hope this isn't too confusing for people, because bear with me. Once you've turned those cards face down, they sort of stay there. So let's say uh, you ran your city and it had four cards, and now you've got four face down cards. If you build one thing and run your city again, you're still going to get four poverty cubes because there are still four stacks. So because you made spaces for four buildings, if your city ever has less than four buildings, it doesn't matter. You're still getting four poverty. Ah. So the way the game works is that you can be like i'm going to build a city that always has six buildings in it and Mm -hmm. then run them all which is quite efficient but you have to fill them up otherwise you're generating incredible amounts of poverty uh and similarly there's a system whereby if you get uh if you ever run out of money the game's like that's fine you just take a loan and every loan you haven't paid back like 150 percent of by the end of the game is again a massive hit to your victory points so while the engine wasn't that fun to me, it definitely felt like a game from sort of about 10 years ago, which it is. Mm. What I really liked is so many engine building games are like, oh, you don't have any money. Oh, you can't buy this thing. Yeah. Whereas this game is like, no, you can always buy things. You can always build more buildings, but you're screwing yourself. Right. But are you? Or are you just being really clever and are you outthinking the game? Well, we found that with World of Railways, which also had the same mechanic of just being like, hey, just take out loans. And just, but then I found in a way in that, anyway, it just confused me in terms of... Like, railways of the world. That's it, Sorry, yeah. Um, and that just confused me in the fact that it was like, well, is this a bad... I, can, I couldn't work <laughs> out how bad it was to do in a way. It was that thing of being like, is it good to just take out... Because they were different. You couldn't pay those loans back. Oh, because you're not. You just got no. the loan card, and uh, I'm pretty. Oh, sure. that was it. You uh, for every loan you have in your possession, when you run your city, it gives you an additional poverty. So if you take out loads of loans uh, and okay. then to build a massive city, but you can pay them off in this. Yeah, you can if okay. you, if you get rich enough. And this is the thing. Uh, sure. A fun. Oh, I say fun. A very complicated mechanic in it is if you see a player going, "Oh, screw it! I'm going to just have all the poverty in the world. It's fine. I'll get rid of it by the end of the game." Other players can go. Will you though? And then work to make sure they never ever discard anything that would allow you to like. Ah, uh, yes. I, I'll tell you one thing that's weird in terms of theme though. The cards that let you sort of discard poverty are like unusual. One of which is prisons. One of which is sewers, and another is parks. So it's like, what's happening with these poor people? Are they be are they going down the tunnels under London and just being flushed away? Um, oh. and no, I believe the implication there is that they are building the sewers and therefore gaining employment. But still, it's that's funny. the implication. That's what we're told. Yeah, but who knows what's happening underneath London? This um, is a bad Doctor Who episode, if ever I heard one. So yeah, oh, the yeah, game is. is really quite good and it's very beautiful. And if you're a board gamer who really likes London, it's full of so much wonderful art. Otherwise, I might not recommend it. Because what era of London are we talking about? Well, it's after the Great Fire, so it's about a hundred years from. Oh, I want to say 1750 to 1850. Okay, I'm, I wasn't alive then, so it's <laughs> yeah, it's not. But you can actually. This is the exciting thing. The the deck is stacked kind of historically, so you get the A cards and the B cards. The A cards are like, what about some fishmongers? But then you get to the C cards, Matt. You can build the London Underground. Whoa. Ooh, right. So I've got a quick question, which is, can you like just put the same things in different places? Uh, how do you mean? 
I mean, like, is there a way you can be like, I'm rebuilding St. Paul's Cathedral, but this time I'm putting it in Hammersmith instead of in the middle of the city, or I'm building the London Eye, but all the way nowhere near the river, and when you get on it, you can't see anything. Sorry, lol. Uh, not really. Um, oh. You can... No, not really. I mean, the London Eye wasn't around in the in that period of history, I don't think. The London Eye was built 400 years ago. Really? Man. It's yes. quite futuristic for them, isn't it? I know. It's amazing. Way it was built it must be 400 years by, really? by King Henry X. <laughs> it must be really booked up. Yeah, it was. Um, it's fine. It's good. The thing that it made me think about though when you talk about struggling with loans matthew uh, i'm reading um i'm not struggling with loans <laughs> <laughs> uh so board game designer jeff engelstein um who made things like space cadets uh and fog of war and the mm. expanse board game matt and i like the expanse we haven't played the board game yet maybe we should mm. um he has this book out uh called game tech which is about his dice tower segments blah, blah 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 long story short i was reading about him saying that a game can only have one innovation which seems completely insane to us. But then he, he sort of talked you through his working. But the interesting thing about loans, Matt, you were just saying, I, this is confusing. I don't know how I should, should I be taking loans? Yeah. And the reason why is you're basically playing a train game where because it has this second innovation of loans bolted on, it's very difficult for our brains to understand this new problem of building a railway network, which mm. we've never experienced before. And then also, how does that gel with I think it was it wasn't even the fact that really mechanically what those loans were where they were like a a another element to the euro game of being like another element of scoring and it was just like it was already like there were enough options of maybe you can score like this or like this or like this when you added that factor in as well it just it that was one of those things where I already find when I'm playing euro games to be like oh I don't really know how many points I'm going to get with this strategy but I'll just go with it yeah but that extra element so it wasn't so much the innovation with that I think it was more that like with a euro game if you have slightly too many routes and options and, and potential point salads to dip into, yeah. you end up just being like, I have no yeah. idea if I'm even making a salad. Yeah. Like, I, I, <laughs> I might just be filling this bowl with forks. It's that point of like, you think you're making a salad and it's just a bowl of pine nuts. <laughs> but, right. but it's uh, also a good point. It makes those things feel a lot less special when you have a whole bunch of them thrown in together. Yes. Uh, but no, I get that. that I, I think I do agree with that point though of like, if you have too many gimmicks, then you need to have the anchors of familiarity for people to be able to play with the new ideas. Yes, I'm going to be talking about not just Jeff Engelstein's book, but uh, more books in general in the future on Shut Up and Sit Down. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'll look forward to doing that because I'm having so much fun with it. Books it's, to do with board games. Books mean. to do with board games, yeah. yeah not just yes. <laughs> Shut Up and Sit Down is now my literature <laughs> review site. Next week, Jane Austen. Uh, I've been reading The Cat in the Hat. It's really it's a rather revolutionary idea. And I'm ideas. so proud of you. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. Speaking of people, I'm uh, who uh, I'm not going to make um, that joke. Uh, Paul, ooh. you've been playing the Munchkin collectible card game. I wonder where you that joke was that going. Joke. You we'll just never didn't know. No, I didn't. I didn't. You can't <laughs> prove anything. Oh. I, to my surprise, I have. And uh, briefly, I, first of all, just so everyone's clear on this, I am not... The largest fan of Munchkin in the world. Hey, Paul, Paul, yes, Paul, yes, you got it. yes. Explain Munchkin to the masses. It is a game where you uh, draw cards and fight monsters by trying to get numbers. And some of the cards you have are. It has a vaguely fantasy theme where you pretend you're kicking down doors in a dungeon, and then as you f- draw cards that are like more powerful monsters, you can fight them and use more powerful loot, which makes you more powerful. And eventually one of you has to reach level 10 and it usually ends up that everybody plays a bunch of cards that tell other people, you can't do that because you're about to do something and then somebody plays a card and they're like, "You that doesn't happen because I had this card in my hand all along and you didn't know and there was no way to do anything about it. It has a lot of expansions that have themes <laughs> like Shakespeare or Cthulhu or vampires and they add lots more cards that add more monsters and more stuff without necessarily like changing the game very much. And the thing is, it's actually kind of accessible and it's, I kind of feel it's not a bad party game. And that's probably sinful to say, but it's okay. I mean, there are no sins when it comes to a pins. There's, wow. That's what I always say. That was yeah, a long I wish reach. you wouldn't. <laughs> the, uh, it's, I mean, obviously if people enjoy Munchkin, that's absolutely awesome. I think we all have a chip on our shoulder about it because, you know, it, there's a, I mean, you know what? Let's not derail the conversation by talking about geek, you know what is geek culture. Um, but I'm really pleased to hear you say, Paul, that the Munch, the new Munchkin collectible card game format thing is good. 
it was a lot more interesting than I expected because I came in with like no expectations and I thought, uh, you know, how is this going to work as a head-to-head, vaguely Netrunner-ish kind of thing? Um, and it actually surprised me. So what you do is you you have a deck of cards, you play a certain character who has certain powers. Sorry, have uh, you built the deck yourself? You can build a deck yourself. Um, at the moment, like they're going around conventions, I think, with pre-built decks. Of course, um, yeah. And it's full of different monsters and different devices. Um, and in a in a magic kind of way, you set the monsters on each other and you try and uh, hit one another. And you start off, um, again, in a munchkin kind of way, you start off quite low level, which means you don't have very much money, which means you can't afford to hire more expensive monsters. So you start off sending sort of low level stuff at each other and batting these things back and forth and deploying relatively weak items. The thing is... There's a bluffing mechanic under all of this where whenever you send something to attack someone else, you put it face down, you put some money next to it, and it could just be nonsense. It could actually not be a real monster that's attacking you, or you could have not actually paid the monster enough money to hit the other player. But they don't know that because it's face down and it's just coming at them. And they have choices like uh, they can try and tackle what this thing is, or they can run away. But you can only run away once, and then next time you you try and run away again, you'll take damage. Um, and the amount of money that you pay also doesn't have to necessarily equal what the creature is worth. So you could actually de- deploy a level zero thing, but put a pile of money on top of it, which looks terrifying. And it's entirely context-based because you, as the player on the other side, could be in a great situation where you have a bunch of artifacts in front of you and you feel strong and like you can defend yourself. Or you could have nonsense, or you could have had a bunch of stuff that's died, and you could be on the back foot right now, and you might have a pocket full of money, but nothing else, and you don't know what's coming around the corner. Honestly, so it, it does sound slightly inspired by Netrunner. It's, and the thing is, there's not a huge amount more to it than that, and uh, I found a lot of the cards were jokey in the way that munching cards are jokey and not maybe that funny the first time, and then not funny at all afterwards. Um <laughs> But because you, you can recruit things and they come back into your hand afterwards if you use them, you end up with a mechanic where you want to keep an eye on what your opponent's doing because, you know, you, you have a better idea of if they are just bluffing and if they are throwing a bunch of nonsense at you that, that maybe is level zero and actually won't hurt you at all. And it's a bluff to try and get you to run off so that they can then get you in a corner later and then do their real damage. And this, you know, this sort of mind Wait, game is stuff like is a- going on. Can you move around a board? Are there sort you, of spaces? you don't. Sorry, that's my way of describing how you can sort of only run away once. So it's a good idea to choose whether you do or don't do that or when you do that. Ah, but okay. You see, it. I, I wasn't compelled by this, but I was immediately like, I think you can see how I was surprised. And I was like, oh, there is more going here, going on here than I first thought. Mm. A lot of the cards I played with were fairly basic in that they're just like attack or defend. But a few of them also did other things. Um, that allowed me to like recycle cards or reuse cards. Um, and you also, I'm trying to remember what the name are, but there's, I think they're location cards that you can play. And that, that affects like where you are fighting right now, which changes some of the mechanics of the game. None of it was hugely deep, but it was more than I expected. And it was interesting enough that I hope, you know, if people have got into Munchkin, this could be their, their step into things in a net runnery kind of direction, and I don't mind if people want to go in that direction. Well, that's that's awesome. Do you know anything about the business model yet, as to whether it will be like uh, the living card game model pioneered by Fantasy Flight, where you just buy lots of fixed expansions, or the booster pack model, where you buy a pack of cards and pray and pray? I think it's a booster pack version, although I'm saying that without 100% certainty, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Commit to the abyss, Paul. <laughs> Talking of committing to the abyss, earlier oh. I implied that that n- it was impossible to have opinions that were bad, which is entirely wrong. Some we apologise for this. There are some opinions. With, generally within board games, you, you're mostly fine. Oh, I yeah. In the wider that. world, sometimes some opinions are just straight up. They're awful. Poor. Yeah, mm-hmm. so just to clarify that. <laughs> anyway, uh, we've got... Um, one more thing to talk about briefly this time, yeah i think briefly we'll touch on this well actually it's really the subject of opinions um because we published a review which some people can you believe it disagreed with no if you've been to shutupandsitdown.com recently uh i reviewed gaia project which is a kind of i think it's fair to call it a sequel to terra mystica um we've been running along long enough and we have a fantastic read email to get to so i'll just briefly say um Terra Mystica is a game of terraforming. It came out in 2011. Paul and I reviewed it, and 
The story of what happened this month is I played Gaia Project and went, oh, I don't know how much I like this. Mm. And then went, oh, no, we recommended Terra Mystica five years ago. What if it's bad? But it's, this story's got a happy ending, Paul, because I invited <laughs> Matt over and he played Terra Mystica for the first time. And what did you think, Matt? I loved it. It really got into my head. I still think Ooh. about it a lot. I mean, we've played it once, but you're kind of gigging at this point. No, no, it's great. I, yeah. what, a, what a nice thing to say. It's one of those things where, like, it was just a, a great game. It, it captured my imagination. I'd really want to I'd really want to play more of it. It obviously had lots of elements from, you know, actually, I mean, five years is not ancient. You know, there were things about it that weren't quite right, like the kind of, like, you know, the uh, the art of the female characters is pretty weak and stuff. And across the board, it's like the, the art leans slightly towards being shonky, but it still has a kind of bright colorful charm that i liked um and i I just really love games like that where actually in a way it is super weird kind of like quite trad fantasy in an odd way but then allows it to to have a sense of story that you build yourself like the fact that you know the the different races all do different things that are all on your boards and you end up giving your own little story to what your your characters like you know you kind of think oh but i can do this really well and so I had those little fish people and I had a, a very clear sense of what my little fish culture was like on the board, which for a game of just putting little wooden cubes on a thing was That's is always uh, really, really good. No, it was it was great. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I didn't get along with uh, Gaia Project that well. Um, and, Ooh. you know, I said in the review as well, like it's got... I didn't like the design as much, but more importantly, it's more expensive. It's significantly more expensive. It seems like to me something for people who really, you know, love Terra Mystica and have played it to death. Well, I think it's kind of variant almost. Some people on Reddit uh, Board Games Board were saying quite fairly uh, after they read my review that Shut Up and Sit Down values elegance. And I think probably if I'm being honest, there's two things that we do really like. One of which is kind of laughter, entertainment value, and then Mm. also Mm -hmm. I suppose interactivity. But I do think I personally, I don't know about you guys, do value elegance. The more you can do with the less rules, the more I'm sort of impressed and yeah, I'm increasingly feeling that way as well. Yeah, and Gaia Project definitely feels like uh, more rules, but none of them are well. Anyway, this is go and read my review and uh, and maybe join in the discussion as to not whether I'm right or wrong because, like Matt says, there's no wrong opinions. But uh, yeah, have a think for yourself. Stuff is is interesting in that. I mean, I've been playing through very gradually. I won't go into detail here at all for various reasons, but. I've been slowly playing through um, season two of Pandemic Legacy mm. very, very slowly. And it is interesting in the fact that there is a, a slight degree of like, I can already feel creeping in kind of like, eh, this is getting a bit a bit rulesy here. Um, but also it's interesting how like, yeah, there can be some very subtle changes which just completely reframe everything and actually make you look at things in a different way. And it is sometimes elegance is about having less stuff, but sometimes elegance is just about how things are framed. And mechanically, it's very similar to the to the first pandemic legacy but then by reframing things in a certain way you do lose a lot of uh, satisfaction from elements it's, it's interesting it's so silly how hmm. we as a board game press have, are developing all these skills for like you know uh, talking about you know rules and how do these rules interact with storytelling and and then now we've got this new idea of legacy games which we can't talk about really yeah it's interesting <laughs> it's, I mean, lot- it'd be great to kind of obviously when, when i've managed to get through uh, more of it to come back and revisit that with maybe a little podcast special because i think it's these sometimes offer the most interesting conversations about design because it's really like when things get put through an absolute ringer when you have to just when you keep playing again and again and again that you it's so it's such a fascinating um, thing but sometimes it, I think for me one of the things about board games is you really do see the difference where you can slightly reframe one mechanic in a way which to most people would probably not even be notable and it has a, a tremendous impact and I find especially actually when we go and look at video games and talk about video games. It's uh, an element of, of design literacy that board games and looking at board games gives you that you you just isn't present in the video game realm in yeah. terms of the way people talk about yeah. things. It's just, it's fascinating that when you say, yeah, but that, that tiny difference makes a huge <laughs> difference. They go, well, how can it? And it's like, because... <laughs> There's uh, often not much to hide behind in board game design, I think. Yeah. No, yeah, it's all very bare. But it's it's interesting. And again, the other reason we, you know, legacy problems is that it's one of the reasons I've not really played much over the past month. I've been unable to because A, I've been trying to play this and B, everyone's been getting, it's January, everyone's been getting wiped out one by one. I've oh, had, through I've had disease. so many game nights fall through because either I've been ill or other people have been ill. And, oh my goodness. Um, yeah. Been getting started. Uh, like I've had two weeks of the flu that has been going around North America and I haven't had the yeah. flu since 1999 and now I remember what it's like. Don't get the flu, please. If it's there's a way real. you can avoid it or... It's a real epidemic. It's a genuine 
It's a genuine yeah. epidemic. But no, I'm excited. It's been a, a lovely cold month of staying home and being unwell and playing video games. We've got such an exciting year ahead. And oh, now my the goodness. weather's going to hopefully stop, start defrosting and we're going to start traveling around and playing games. If you haven't been reading the games news on shutupandsitdown.com every week, like every week Paul and I do it and it's like, God, these games look really good. Yeah. I think yeah. that two, I, I thought that 2017 was a bit of a a bit of a slow year for us. By the end, it was like, oh, we're going to review. Remember going to PAX Unplugged and mm. then finding Fog of Love and something else and being like, oh, thank God. Yeah. We, oh, yeah. I, I cannot wait for the Fog of Love review. Oh, that's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait <gasps> for the Baron Park expansion and playing uh, Baron Park for the first oh, time. Oh, you've never played? Oh, it's I've so never played Baron Park. Tetris Bears. Tetris Bears. Tetris Bears. Okay, right. Let's move on <laughs> to our lovely mailbag. Put your hand in my mailbag for me a letter. So our uh, letter this week comes from uh, Anonymous and is a follow-on from last week's amazing chat about uh, counterfeit board games. I really, really enjoyed hearing you talk about uh, fake board games and how they're sweeping the world. Um, but we've got an interesting point from uh, someone else. <laughs> from, from a different human. Uh, dear Matt, Paul, Quinns and Pear, I am a board gamer from an Eastern European country. Your discussion on counterfeit games struck a chord with me. Such a thing has been more rampant in the region I come from, and I do believe that Matt and Paul's discussion was missing a very important point. This is also a story about capitalism. That's, of course it is, yeah. That's, that's me saying, yeah. Uh, on average, the UK's per capita GDP is 3.4 times higher than most Eastern European countries. Despite a huge difference, board game prices are by and large the same. I have friends with kids who simply would not be able to afford the shiny original FFG games such as Imperial Assault or Star Wars Rebellion. Yet, their kids share Paul's enthusiasm for dressing up as Wookiees and would love (laughs) to participate in epic battles in a galaxy a long time far, far away. Some of these friends made the conscious decision to buy a counterfeit copy, not to save a few quid, but to be able to afford to buy such a game at all. I would even add that Eastern European countries should be considered lucky compared to other places on Earth, where the economic situation is even more dire. When it comes to rich Western countries, I completely agree with Matt. what Matt and Paul said about this whole issue. Nevertheless, when you next meet the CEOs of board game companies, you should ask them, why don't they make cheaper editions of the flagship games? Why don't they release Imperial Assault and Star Wars Rebellion with cardboard chits instead of plastic miniatures? I understand that this should be a company's decision, but I find it hard to fault my friends and others who resort to buying counterfeit games out of necessity. How about that? I mean, I, th- I completely agree with all of that. And actually, I, it was why I felt a little bit tenacious, maybe, when I was talking about piracy, when I was kind of leaning towards being like, I think sometimes... It's okay, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, I mean, you you were con- you said you know that you pirated Photoshop, and when I was, I probably wouldn't be a games journalist today if I hadn't got my start pirating all the PC games and PS2 games that gave me the grounding in the culture mm. by playing enough that then enabled me to write confidently. I played so many Super Nintendo games. I never owned a Super Nintendo because I didn't. I just yeah. couldn't have one. Paul, what do you think about this? You know what? As soon as you were reading that, I was thinking about video games and I was thinking particularly about uh, Eastern Europe and how there's really quite a lot of Eastern European video games developers and there's a growing scene there. There's a lot of talented people who work there. A lot of folks who would say, like, I couldn't afford games when I was younger or they weren't even distributed in my country. So I got hold of a pirated version and, you know, you fast forward 10 or 15 years and these people are now video games developers or famous designers And they will say, like, you know, I buy video games now and I support the industry, but I would never have got into this, you know, Mm. as a as a young person if I hadn't had those uh, not legal channels that things come through because they would have been unaffordable or just like physically not present, not there at all. Mm -hmm. Um, An interesting thing that happened when I was in India. um, I went. If people have seen the Hive Pocket review, I just put up the video. um, That was a fun review. I filmed it in an ancient ruin. It's great. Go watch it. Um, But at the end of that, you see a clip of me in a um, uh, Indian board game meetup in Bangalore, and uh, they were telling me, I was like, "How do you get the games?" And they were saying, "Oh, well, whenever one of them goes to America, they become a mule and have to smuggle all these board games home because there is like one board game shop in all of India." Mm, Um, Wow. But here's an interesting thing. Steam, the video games uh, purchasing platform um, for PC that's everywhere, um, in India, 
the Steam shop drops all of its prices because obviously they you just can't yeah. sell video games for the yeah. same price. Everything is like sixty percent or fifty percent the price in mm-hmm. rupees. Um, obviously, if you're a board game, it's not just that it's it's not that it's cheap. It's not that it's the same price. It's more expensive to import this. Yeah. Stuff. Now, obviously, this is not technically the problem of a company that's just trying to make money. And Lord knows with the exception of the very biggest ones, or ones that have been lucky enough to be bought by Asmodee, a lot of board game publishers struggle to even keep the yes, lights on. of course. Um, however, um, it doesn't... The question becomes, like, if they had cheaper versions of the game available, would, would that not increase sales? And the answer is, we don't know. Probably they don't know. The experiment yeah. hasn't been done. And it's also the difficulty of, like, unfortunately, this is... He's completely right. This is a story about capitalism, just because it's, like, the issue of what happens when you have... Um, when you have physical products being sold in a globalized world yeah. mm-hmm. in different markets. And that, with digital, you can just change the prices. It makes sense. But with this, yeah, it's the problem of being like, yeah, let's just say that Asmodee do produce very cheap versions for, for like, you know, different markets. Yeah. But then what happens when they start appearing on Amazon and being sold? Like, they kind of have this issue then where, like, they can then be sold in America or in England. And yeah. then they're cutting into their own sure. margins. But, so let's, let's, if we keep the conversation on... Um, board games that are simpler versions of the same frame. So mm-hmm. if you drop the price, you drop the component quality as well. What have we seen on Kickstarter where, like, every, it seems like every Kickstarter board game now costs not $40, which would be the going price mm-hmm. if we had our way for a board game, but, like, $80 because it includes all this plastic. It includes yeah. all yeah. these extra stretch goals and extra yeah. cards. But what do we see? People pay that. People yeah. pay higher that they don't say oh i'll just wait until it comes to usually retail. when the base game is cheaper that's just a way of getting people to buy the extras absolutely yeah. Yeah. So, so what we've got now this board game scene is in the board game scene that we are part of that we love is mostly made up of people with a lot of disposable income yeah. who want really fancy versions of their games games are so much nicer even than when shut up and sit down started six years ago um so i want to say that if a company like asmodee put out imperial assault with a box that was half as thick with cardstock that was, I mean, a bit worse. And again, we're getting into pipe dream stuff here because mm. I don't think they could change their production, you know, pipeline to make well, cardstock. It's, it's this also, worse. especially with Fantasy Flight, it's also about specifically what their their brand offers. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, and that, unfortunately, that is the situation of being like, well, yeah, they're, they're making they're, their brand is offering a product for rich Western markets. Yeah, and that kind of sucks, but that's the reality. Of However, are, you know? yeah, and so uh, yeah, to finish my point, um, obviously, if they put out a version of Imperial Assault that didn't have the miniatures that was half the price and had worse cardstock and worse card quality, I don't think it would cut into their sales that poorly because surely everyone would want the cool miniatures. Mm, it, the difficulty with that as well is, is that you start to get into, and again, it's not even excusing it, but you start to get into like the weird branding of like you know the, the the economy version. What do you call it? How do you stop? And I think really with this, it's interesting. And I think that the real truth of all this stuff is the fact that actually, like you know, there's there's always a lot of morality when it comes to to uh, to piracy as as with lots of laws. But really, you look at who gets lifted out above it and why, and it's 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 there are there are similarities and parallels. With uh, with a lot of other illegal stuff like drugs, even and a good example, I guess, would be uh, CD Projekt Red in the fact that those guys now, you know, make The Witcher and they're making Cyberpunk and they make video games and they're hugely successful publisher now mm. and they make mm-hmm. a lot of money and now they play the game. You know, now they are part of capitalism, but they they start out selling pirate copies in of games in uh, yeah. in like car parks and, you know, <laughs> because that was they had no access to these expensive things because back then video games were like board games are now of being like. We can't afford to import these expensive games and then buy them. So I do. I, we should give a shout out here to the one example of this in terms of a, a publisher doing this that I can think of, which is um, and this isn't like making a super budget version of the game, but um, uh, Sophie Gavel made uh, the wooden version of Flick 'Em Up, which is the version of Flick 'Em Up that most people know and love. It costs like seventy quid. Mm. Um, Zed Man, when she was in charge of it, or F2Z back then, put out a plastic version of Flick'em Up, and I think you can still get it. Mm. So the plastic version of Flick'em Up is like easily half the price, but obviously still works because, well, duh, it's and a board again, game. Again, not, again, not a cheap option, really. No, but I think the plastic with, version no, was still £35. But with, with Gloomhaven, they did the same thing with the original yes, Kickstarter. Yes, oh good, oh, well yeah. remembered. Of it being like, hey, if you don't want any plastic at all, because it's not a very plastic, it's not a miniatures game, really. You don't want any plastic at all. I don't know if this is the continued thing. It may have just been the early okay. runs. Uh, okay. But um, yeah, having the option to just have cardboard stands, like little cardboard and plastic stands, rather than any plastic at all for for less money. So I think again, it, what I was trying to get across last time when we talked about this is really, you know, when you can convert piracy to being like when someone pirates something, it's a lost sale. Clearly, in a lot of these cases, especially from where this uh, 
writer of this letter comes from, it's not a lost sale. It's a sale that could never be made because of the sheer cost. Yeah. However, yeah. as what we came back to, and I think we did, we kind of, I think we tried our best with it last podcast, but we maybe fudged it. I guess the message I was really trying to get across is the key problem with it really, from my perspective, is when people are buying counterfeit stuff without knowing they're making a decision. I think if you're in a position yes. where you've made a conscious decision to buy a counterfeit copy and you feel like ethically you can justify that from your position of where you're at mm. now for whatever reason, mm. um, then, you know, like if you're willing to defend that yeah. when, when questioned, fine. But it's when, it's when people are being effectively tricked and not even realizing it. I think that's, no, just I think that's oh, an extremely good point. And it's, it's kind of, it says something about the market or it says something about how this can be so pervasive that there are folks out there who very innocently would not know the difference. They're doing everything the way that you would expect to. They go on maybe Amazon, they buy something. How are they to possibly know that they're getting the the, the fake version of it that's literally half as much versus exactly. that they're just getting a sale version? And you've got to be savvy with so much stuff like this with now. Like, you know, camera batteries are a classic thing on Amazon now. Like, it's Ooh, really? even when you're buying directly from reputable sales, you have to be so careful you're not buying <laughs> something dodgy. It's, a, it's kind of a strange place we're in, but... I mean, thanks so much for this letter, though. I think, this I think is it's fantastic. It's a fantastic letter. But honestly, I mean, the counterfeiting, I, th- I think, is is not something we can have a tremendous amount of input in because Lord knows the, the listeners of this podcast probably aren't the people counterfeiting board games. No. But publishers do listen to this podcast, and I would really like to have more of a discussion around making board games cheaper because it helps. I mean, ultimately, what the three of us care about more even than, you know, like publishers or even the people paying our bills. What we mm. really care about are board games in general, making sure the scene is as good as possible. Yeah. And having a scene that is as rich as possible is about having... Well, I mean, guess what? It comes back to diversity because you want a great a people from all sorts of different backgrounds making board games because that creates a greater variety of board games, which makes it for a better scene. And to be fair, they finally now getting close to having the opportunity to do this because one of the things is to talk a bit of industry shop for those who care. Over the past few years, a lot of the consolidation we've seen about companies buying up companies, and there's been lots of that. Oh, yeah. If you're not aware, Asmodee, who is a large publisher, have bought a a shocking amount of board game publishers. But a a big part of that is because for many years, all of the rights for selling different versions of games have been split up to all these tiny little companies Companies because it's all little deals that have taken place over you know 30 40 50 years and mm. so actually like a big part of this is that actually for the first time we're seeing games having consolidated control so it's like you know the people who control this game have the rights to distribute it all over the world rather than just in like america and france yeah or whatever which which means like yeah in the past this kind of idea of being like hey how about we have this game and make different versions available for different territories has been like kind of impossible but yeah it's it's now, it's one of those things where publishers, there is a ball in their court, whether yeah. or not they want to touch that ball. Yeah, And you know what I'm thinking of? <laughs> when um, Fantasy Flight were putting out, Fantasy Flight, now owned by Asmodee, um, were putting out the, the Star Wars RPG, they did exactly what Wizards of the Coast did and put out a starter box, which was a lot cheaper, had mm. not all of the rules, but it was, I think it had some dice in, it had some, you know, paper, had some cardboard, whatever. Yeah. But it was, it was so much cheaper because buying the books is like 80 quid. You know, it's... You can see examples of this. You can mm. see f- few and far between areas where people have run a Kickstarter or making an RPG have gone, well, we'll just make a cheaper version of this because it makes sense here. It makes sense in board games too. It makes yeah. sense to do cheaper versions, I think. Because, I mean, we don't know what the board game industry would look like if board games didn't cost 40 quid, but you could get versions of a lot of the better ones for like 20 quid. We don't know what the, the how the demographic would grow or how it would change, but, it, you know, it seems like something worth experimenting with. Mm. Yeah. Seems like something that uh, we are going to be supporting and uh, pushing for. Yeah. Uh, and finally, I just I just like to say, in addition to this uh, this letter, which was great, we had a bunch of comments on the site of the last podcast talking about some of this stuff, talking about other stuff. Um, I just say I always just hugely appreciate when we get this kind of feedback because you know we try and talk about these sorts of things from time to time. And it's very difficult to wrestle with them, especially on podcasts. You always get the sense you haven't quite nailed it. So when you <laughs> yeah. do get people following yeah. up with points or questions or queries or, or just very gently calling you out on something specifically you said that they don't think is fair, yeah. I we, we all hugely appreciate that. And also yes. just appreciate the tone of the community from you guys, that people don't ever approach us uh, the majority of the time with any anger. They or just, hostility. Yeah. yeah, they just they come and say, hey, you're kind of wrong about this. We're always open to that stuff. Do please keep it up. Uh, yes, yes, very much you, so. 
Absolutely. Uh, and if you want to email us, you can do that at contact at shutupandsitdown.com. Uh, or more to add just, just, I was going to say, just jump into the comments at the bottom of this podcast or any other, because there's something that, you know, all of us keep an eye on very often. And uh, yeah, we read know, it's something I like about yeah. the site. We read all the comments, so yep. if you want to get in touch with us, you know, it's kind of one way, but we will read your comments and review and reply if we have time. Well, we do. Yeah. We do sometimes. We, oh, absolutely, you know. yeah. No, we, we get stuck into the comments on shutupandsitdown.com. Our forum's doing really well. Hey, check out the forum if you haven't. Pop into that. Yes. Talk about board games. Burb of games. Uh, I've been Quentin Smith. <laughs> you have, haven't you? Yeah. Uh, I've been Matt Lees. <laughs> no, one, no, no, this was about me. This oh, was no, my... Quentin Smith has been Quentin Smith. Played by Quentin Smith, guest starring Paul Dean. Uh, that's me. I'm still Paul Dean, and I will continue to be after this podcast ends. Wow! Imagine that you're like Schrodinger's Paul Dean. The <laughs> podcast ends. Is he still Paul Dean? No one knows. No one knows, and there's no way to prove it because no, no. he's, uh, he's, he's in a box. <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> Uh, right, we'll be back in another few weeks. Uh, but yeah, do check out all the lovely reviews on shutupandsitdown.com. Mm-hmm.